Church, we get to sit down with a very special guest here at Encounter this morning, um, my dad. To round off the series, what's the point of church uh, in generosity? Uh, I can think of no better person to sit down and interview with uh, than the person who taught me so incredibly much. So starting off, I just want to say thank you for being here today. Uh, I want to share a story uh, with you, church, and, and we haven't even uh, talked much about this story. Uh, before, so you're kind of wondering what it is. Yeah, I am. I remember when I was uh, probably seven, eight years old, after dinner one time, uh, you came to the table with a, a strong suggestion, a strong encouragement, as we'll say, uh, that each of me and my two older brothers uh, pick a different organization, uh, good vetted organizations, uh, to tithe to, to give 10% of whatever money that we had at that moment uh, toward. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't have anything. And he said, how much money is on, because we used the charts at that point. Oh yeah, <laughs> the charts. How much is on your chart? And I looked and it was $10. And you said, well, that's a whole dollar that you can give away to a really great organization and somebody that needs it. And pick one out on the list. And I was so taken back that my dollar would matter. Help me understand, where does that value come from? Actually, I gotta bring it back maybe the year that you were born, 1984, which, which was uh, a defining moment in my life. A friend of mine had been randomly meeting and have a little prayer breakfast, and I think it was during a spring break. And it was just the two of us. Uh, none of the other people were there because they all went to Florida or wherever. And this older gentleman walks in. He was probably maybe six or seven years younger than I am today. But <laughs> This old guy comes in and he says, we recognized him from church. And he says, can I sit down with you guys? Well, we're not gonna say no. So I said, sure. He says, hey, he says, uh, this is a good opportunity for me to introduce the, the, the idea of giving in your life. That's kind of where it started. And he read me Malachi 3 verse 10, hmm. which basically says, uh, bring in the whole tithe, uh, put it in my storehouse, test me in this says the verse, as the Lord God said. And let me show you how open the, the floodgates of heaven with blessings. Mm -hmm. He says, when, when the Lord says, test me in this, he says, you're not gonna find that too many other places in the Bible. He says, Martin, that's a triple dog dare. That's a triple dog dare from the Lord. And he says, you, you, better, you better hold on to that one. Yeah. So he told me about the God account. God account. The God account, where you take 10% of all of the money you make and put it in a separate checking account. He says, don't even let it rub shoulders with your other monies. Mm. And and I said, well, 10%, right? I said, do you tithe on the net or do you tithe on the gross? He says, you want a gross nest, uh, blessing or a net, a net blessing? And I go, oh, well, might as well go for the gross blessing. Gross blessing he says, sounds good. He says, let me tell you something. He says, the blessings that the Lord rains down yeah. aren't necessarily the blessings how you want them. Mm -hmm. they're, they're going to be how he needs the blessing to go to you. And I took a huge step that day and said, yeah. And there were times that I thought, I don't know, but it was a step that was worth taking because it changed my life from that day on so radically mm -hmm. in terms of my relationship with the Lord. So that's kind of where this 
giving thing comes from. Why is sacrificial generosity so important to you? First of all, there's there's this little uh, story of David who goes out and he wins this battle and he comes and he wants to do this sacrifice. And he goes to this farmer and he says, hey, I need, I need some animal to sacrifice and I gotta have a bunch of wood for the altar. And the farmer is like, oh, the king is here. Give him whatever he not needs. And, and David says, no, 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 no. He says, I'll pay for it. For what good is it to me hmm. to sacrifice if it costs me nothing? Well, this whole idea of sacrifice is like, I can sacrifice because Christ hmm. sacrificed and it helped me realize that here I am using all of my money. Yeah. It's not my money, it's all his. He made this huge sacrifice to bring me salvation. And I'm sitting here, I'll give a little bit back in return and I wanna join in with that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. As like a show of thanksgiving. What is your hope for our church watching? recognizing that everything that we have belongs to the Lord. And out of that, I give back a little bit, but entering into the sacrificial gift and then going back as a married couple and saying, you know what? Having this umbrella over us called the church where within we can help others with even a greater reach beyond ourselves by partnering with an organization like the church. Not only can you give to an organization, yeah. That's a 501c3, and you can get a little bit of tax return back. What a powerful thing to reach over the fence, to help out a neighbor. Tax implications doesn't matter. So Jesus sad. gets all the credit, and it makes us quick to offer that generosity, and the Jesus, generosity of God. And Jesus was the one who showed me that ultimate sacrifice. Amen. And here's just a little bit of a symbol of my gratitude to say, hey, you know, let me help you out. Uh, and, and then, oh, by the way, oh, see, this isn't my money, neighbor. Yes, it's God's money. This is, this is something that, oh. And so then that opens the door to talking to him or her or whoever about what Jesus did for me, what they've done for them. I just want to say thank you um, for being here today and sharing these words. But also, I want to say thank you for me personally. Yeah, sure. And asking, yeah. uh, encouraging strongly <laughs> the first dollar. The first dollar. To and, give away. And that dollar mattered. It always does. Yeah. Thanks. Well, good morning and welcome to Encounter and a little bit of my family dynamics. Uh, so glad that you are here joining us today. We're in part four of four, the, the grand finale of our series, What's the Point of Church? And before we jump into the content of, uh, of today's message, uh, I'd like to do a little look ahead. <clears throat> Next week, we're kicking off a fun series, a brand new series uh, here called I'm Over It. And the idea of this series is just making bold, intentional choices uh, of choosing, uh, choosing discipline over regret, uh, choosing God's purpose over popularity, choosing the important over the urgent, uh, making a decision today that will impact our tomorrows 
forever to come. Uh, join us for the series. I'm over it, kicking off next week. Uh, today, though, we finish off the series, uh, What's the Point of Church, by, by taking a look at each one of these big blocks of church. Remember, we're in this season of evaluation and reevaluation. We're looking at what, what's the point? What's the point of worship? Uh, faithfully, part one. What's the point of serving wholeheartedly, part two? What's the point of grouping intentionally, part three, uh, last week and, uh, and today? What is the point of giving? What's the point of sacrificial giving? And, um, and, and I know when I say that, when I share that, uh, some of you are like, I cannot believe that this is the weekend that I invited my friend to come and join us for church. Like, seriously? Come on, the, the, giving, the giving speech? Like, you know, when we're going to end our time together and tell a story and play a little music and like pass the buckets like through the rows? Like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that again. I fell for it. Um, I, I want to kind of turn this thing around for us today and, uh, and, and to say maybe, maybe to expect exactly the opposite of that. You see, how we're going to end this time today isn't with passing buckets for you to give a little money to a new church project that we're working on around here, but just the opposite of that today. We're going to actually send you out with an envelope full of cash. And I'm going to explain that uh, in just a moment because you might be wondering, um, why in the world would you invite me to church, give me an envelope of cash, and then send me on into the week? Great question. <laughs> the answer requires a little bit of setup and a little bit more of my family, uh, family dynamics. Somehow in my family, like every holiday became a candy holiday. Uh, started with Halloween. That makes sense. Trick or treat. Candy ensues. I get it. But then it's like Christmas with the stockings come candy. Valentine's Day at school with the card exchange, candy gets attached onto it. Easter has an Easter basket with candy inside of it. Fourth of July, I don't know how, but it's red, red, white, and blue candy. Like, I don't get it, but like every holiday in my house now comes with a bowl full of candy. We organize it, we put it in a little Ziploc bags to keep its freshness, right? And we date it. It's very important because we got so much candy in our pantry that we're looking through and it's like, check the date on it because it might be from the early 90s. Like, who knows? You know, it starts with, with Halloween, right? We take that holiday, and you know, the kids go trick-or-treat, and they come back, and you guys know what they do, the first thing that they do. They pour it all on the ground, they start to organize it, start to arrange it, start to rank the candy, and that's the moment when I, as a dad, start to kind of like move in a little bit closer, right? My son is looking at me with side eyes, like he's, he knows this one, he calls it the dad tax, raise him young, and... Uh, I'm moving it a little bit closer because what's going to happen is definitely going to happen. And, I, and I, reach, I reach in for one, you know. Do I pick the sucker? I'm not a sucker, right? You know, am I going to get the Bazooka Joe bubblegum? Not if I want a chip tooth today. No. I reach, I reach in for a banana Laffy Taffy. Now, just hear me out, right? It's very controversial, okay? Talk about div division in the church. Very controversial. Hear me. The best, the king of all candies is a banana Laffy Taffy because it is, it is soft, chewy taffy candy with a joke on every package to keep you entertained while you chew. There is no such thing as a better candy than a banana Laffy Taffy. You might think to yourself, but Dirk, it doesn't taste anything like a banana. Hear me out. It does. The history of the banana Laffy Taffy shows us that it has a flavor profile that was created on one of the most prevalent bananas at the time before Big Banana came in, took up 99% of the market share, thanks a lot, Chiquita, and now this flavor banana is almost extinct. It does taste like a banana. It tastes like God's banana. Yes, thank you for the applause. 
Google fact check me on that one uh, on that one later, but I'm a big fan. I reach over and I grab I grab my son's banana laffy taffy for myself, and he has the audacity to say no. No, no, son, I took you trick or treating. He goes, but I knocked on the door. I bought your costume, but I yelled trick or treat, right? Like he's got he's got an answer for everything. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not even asking for the whole bowl, which I absolutely could, by the way. I'm just asking for one of the many candies that you have. And he goes, no, no, no. No, no. Once I get it, something starts to happen. Once we get something, something starts to happen. Right? Fist, we are happy to receive it with an open palm, but then fist starts to close on it, and all that we can think about is how to keep it, how not to lose it, and how potentially to get more of it. Few things have changed as I was the one on the ground, you know, keeping the candy from, uh, from drifting away into my brother's and, and, and parents' hands from now me as a parent trying to steal the candy out from his bowl. Few things tend to change even as I start to look at the rest of my life, all the provisions and all the generosity that I was happy to receive with an open palm. But then something happens and comes along the way, something actually gets put in my open palm and I clench my fist around it. And I can think of little more than how to keep it, how not to lose it, and how potentially I could get more of it. And the Bible actually, Jesus actually has a word for it. He calls that tendency that we all have, the irony is not lost on me. How we treat God, our Heavenly Father, the same way we treat our earthly fathers around Halloween time. Jesus has a word for it. He calls that clenching, he calls that thing, he calls it greed. And before we put in like whatever idea of greed into that slot of whatever we think greed might be, I just want to substitute this as our definition of greed. Greed is living as if we don't own the stuff, the stuff owns us. Because once we do that, once we close our fist around it, our whole world becomes around how to keep it, how not to lose it, how potentially to get more of it. And it's like we're no longer owning the stuff, the stuff is owning us. And so Jesus is speaking into this. He's going to rescue somebody from that tendency, from that trap of greed 2,000 years ago in the story that we're just about to hear. But I think he's going to rescue some hearts and some lives here today by like prying open our fist to see what life could be like if we could become freed of the stuff that owns us. Let's go to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke chapter 12. Let's kick it off in verse 13 where we read in this, uh, in this passage, Luke tells us that somebody in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, He said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Teacher, tell my brother. Now, a little bit of historical context on this and and some of the cultural uh, nuances that were going on. Probably what happened is that dad, who had a couple of sons, died maybe unexpectedly, didn't have enough time to to tell his kids how he liked the uh, the estate to, to be divided. And so the default setting was that when dad died kind of unexpectedly, everything, the whole estate, all the money, all the property, all this stuff went to the oldest brother and then the oldest brother was responsible for like being the dad and for providing for the rest of the family well those of you with an older brother you can know really quickly how this thing goes wrong in a hurry right because once you've had an older brother and once said older brother sits on you and puts his behind on your head right and maybe some flatulence comes out like you can't you can't look at him as a provider for you anymore trust is eternally broken i'm processing some stuff here today but we got these two brothers we got the little brother now and he's going to jesus and he's going jesus like can you believe this like all the stuff went to my older brother and now he is not taking care of me at least not at least not like i think he should 
So Jesus, he goes, teacher, rabbi, coming to you, not as a legal expert, because the legal case is settled. We know that. I'm coming to you for some kind of a, some kind of a moral appeal, a spiritual appeal. Jesus, I heard that you're a miracle worker. Open up this stingy heart of my older brother, Jesus. I'm coming to you as a moral teacher. Teach him the right, the good, the moral way to richly provide for my needs and maybe a couple of wants along the way. Teacher, where is the attention being focused on in the story? You know, if there's one thing that we know about Jesus is that Jesus loved people. He spent his life with and around people. His whole life was about people. But this guy comes to Jesus, and he's not thinking about people. He's not thinking about his, his dad who passed away. He's not thinking even about his older brother. All of his attention, 100% of the attention in the story so far is about the stuff. The relationship isn't even on the table. And so Jesus knows what he has to do. Because the split has already happened. Now, you might be thinking, like, this is like 2,000 years ago, and we've got a much better system, you know, for taking care of things today. Do we, though? Do we? Like, I just, I hear things, you know, I talk to people and stories. And, and every, every year, it seems like there's a, there's a new iteration of the, of the same uh, family dynamics, the, the same stories. And I'm guessing it's going to sound a little familiar to some of you. Right, where in their 50s, mom and dad saw that their kids were getting older and more independent, and so they were going to do something, uh, something big, something dramatic to like, bring their families together. And in this case, uh, mom and dad decide in their mid to late 50s, as their kids are aging and moving out of the house, they're like, we're going to buy a cottage, or we're going to buy a, a home in a nice place, we're going to buy, uh, I don't know, something on some water, and it's going to be a place that everybody is going to want to come to, our kids, and maybe... When, when the time comes, our grandkids are going to come along and, and spend some time. This is going to be an, a, a center that's going to draw our family in from all over. And for a little while, it does. And it's beautiful. And it's, it's in the beauty that the downfall comes. Because mom and dad now age into their 70s and then into their 80s, potentially beyond. And they're like, I don't want to take care of a cottage anymore. I'm, I'm done with this thing. Or we've got to figure out, what do you guys want to do with it? And maybe they got three kids. And the oldest kid is like, I just want to be done with this thing. I don't want to sell it, divide up the money. Let's just keep it simple. The middle one goes, how could you? Right, typical middle child, right? This is the thing that brought us together. We've got so many great memories here. No, we've got to keep it in the family. Let's double down. Let's, let, let's, let's sweat equity, fix it up. Let, let's give our grandkids and our great-grandkids the same great experience that we had there. And the third kid is going, you can do whatever you want. I don't care. And the other two, somehow, that angers both of them, and they're like, how could you even just not have an opinion, right? Typical youngest, coasting through life, not a care in the world. And the thing, the irony, right? The thing that was meant to bring them together is actually now dividing them apart. It's about the stuff and not the relationship. Josh Milburn has this book, uh, and it's a Netflix special, so we'll go there, called The Minimalist, and uh, you can watch it, I think. And he talks about how, uh, how he came into, like, the minimalist movement of, like, downsizing everything, and, and, and he talks about he grew up in a rural area outside of Dayton, Ohio, and he grew up uh, in, the, in the 80s, super, super poor, and he saw that his family was very, very unhappy all the time. And he thought, well, if they're unhappy and they're also poor, the reason why they're unhappy is probably because they're so poor. Uh, we're so poor. And so I'll do whatever it takes not to be poor when I grow up. And so he did. He worked himself tirelessly. He took every job. He chased every dollar that he possibly could. And by all respects, he was not poor. 
And so one day, he's, uh, Saturday morning, he's cleaning out the garage, and his kid comes to him, hey, Dad, you want to you wanna play catch? Yes, I do want to play catch. Uh, I promised your mom that I was going to clean out the garage. After I clean out the garage, I would be happy. I would love to play catch. He's got so much stuff in his garage. He's, he's sorting through uh, pool equipment, sand toys, uh, soccer balls, sports equipment, all of the stuff. It's no longer Saturday morning. It's now Saturday late afternoon. He finally finishes the garage. Hey, kid, you, you want to you wanna go play catch? No. <laughs> I've done. I've moved on. He has this realization in that moment. He goes, yeah, it's like the stuff, once more, that was meant to bring us together is now the very thing keeping us apart, driving us apart. Uh, Josh's words is maybe the stuff you have is actually keeping you from the life that you want. Isn't that the definition? Isn't that, isn't that what Jesus now is teaching us about, about greed? It says, we're happy to receive it with an open palm, but once we get it, we close our fists on it and we want to keep it, prevent us from losing some of it and potentially even getting more of it. Greed. Greed is living as if we don't own the stuff, the stuff owns us. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of, and there's our word, greed. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You see, the man came to Jesus, right, for this appeal about the stuff. And Jesus doesn't go down the road of the stuff. The genius of Jesus, and why I would strongly recommend you consider following him, is because he recognizes the bigger picture of it all. But this isn't a conversation about the stuff. This is a conversation about you, about your relationship with your brother, possibly the relationship with your Savior. This is a conversation about what, what is going on inside of your heart and the kind of life that you actually want to live. He goes, watch out, be in your guard against greed. Now, we read it here in this translation as greed. Another translation you could make a case for, and some of the versions of the Bible do, they call it insatiable appetite. Be on your guard against this insatiable appetite, this kind of appetite that is never fully and finally satisfied because that's what appetites are, right? We have an appetite. We have an appetite for food. And when was the last time you ate anything and decided, I don't think I'm ever going to have to eat again? For me, it's, you know, again, one of those holidays that we mentioned, right? <laughs> uh, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, I go through all of them, and I think I am never going to be hungry again. But that's not how appetites work, because appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. They always leave us wanting more. And God, Jesus, in, in offering this wisdom to us, I mean, he's just, it's so incredible because we actually get to tap into the divine maker, the divine design of how we were made. Like, he made us, and so he gets this. And he's like, listen, appetites, this desire that you have, it's not bad. Just the opposite of the fact. I gave it to you. I made you that way. The appetite that you have is so incredibly good. There's an incredibly constructive power in this desire that you have to make something better or to grow in some certain way, to, to feed your appetite. That's a good thing. That's a God thing, in fact. But it also has a destructive downside. You could say God made our appetites and sin wrecked our appetites, like a piano, like playing out of tune. It's, it's, it's just, it's off. Even if we hit the right keys, it's just off a little bit. 
God made the appetites. Sin wrecks the appetites. And we think about the appetite that we have for food. And the last time we ate something, and we thought, I'm never going to be hungry again. It was a season for me and my wife. And... Uh, where every time we were in the Chicago land area, every time we were honestly in southwestern Michigan, we'd, we'd stop into the Chicago area and we'd get, and we'd get pizza. Um, she, didn't, she didn't love it. I learned years later. She was just appeasing me, but that's fine because I love it. I love the, the, deep, the deep dish pizza, the kind of pizza that's not really pizza. It's actually cheese casserole, and I'm fine with it, right? It's great. It's greasy goodness. And you have one, maybe two, if you've been walking around the Magnificent Mile all day, two slices of that delicious cheese casserole. And, and then you're done. I'm done, right? And, you know, take my box home, shove it in the little undersized hotel mini fridge, and I think to myself, I'm never going to be hungry again. A couple of hours later, I'm, like, peeking my nose in that hotel mini fridge, looking, like, where? I thought I left a little pizza in here. Can I, can I get some of that back? And I'm hungry again because appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. We know that, right? We know that. And some of us, we might not always be aware that we have an appetite for more than just food. That we have an appetite for acceptance. We have an appetite for creativity. We have an appetite for responsibility. We have an appetite for sex. We have an appetite for respect. We have an appetite for success. We have an appetite for recognition. We have today an appetite for stuff. And because appetites are never fully and finally satisfied, there is not enough kisses, awards, promotions, or shoes in heaven to fully and finally satisfy our insatiable appetite. It will only leave us poking our nose in the hotel mini fridge a couple of hours later asking for just a little bit more. We get it. We get it. Jesus isn't asking you today to eliminate your appetite entirely. No, he gave it to you. There's constructive power there. What he's asking you to do is an appetite management program to rule your appetite or else your appetite will rule you. I mean, this is, for Jesus, this is a game changer. This is everything. This is, well... This is what he describes next as life and life itself. Listen to the next line in verse 15. Jesus says, because life doesn't consist in an abundance of possession. Life isn't found in feeding the appetite that we have for the stuff all the time. Life isn't found there. Contentment isn't found there. Happiness isn't found there. Everlasting joy isn't found there. We, got, we know what's found there. Busyness is found there. Debt is found there. Overcommitment is found there. Family strain is found there. By feeding the appetite that will never be fully and finally satisfied over and over again, we know what's found there, and it's not life. And so Jesus says away, he's going, okay, no, we need an appetite management program, and it's, it's not going to be like the minimalist movement. It's not going to be a capsule wardrobe or limiting the number of things that you have to 100. It's fine stuff. It's not going to look back and saying, okay, oh yeah, that's the spark joy lady. We're going to get back going on, on that thing. Or, or rice and beans and beans and rice. Like whoever, whoever your like celebrity downsized person is, and there's a ton of them over the last 50 years, and there's going to be a ton of them in the next 50 years, because listen, we, we, we recognize we have to rule our appetite or else our appetite will rule us. Greed will win out in the end. It's no kind of life. But Jesus gets that it's like it's, it's bigger than that because you can't do it on your own. And so Jesus, 
is going to step in and give us this different way. He's actually going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So the next line, verse 16. So Jesus, he tells them this parable, this story. Now, it's a story that Jesus made up in order to leverage the spiritual truth for, for him and for us. And it was the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what, what should I do? I've got no place to store my crops. And so the normal thing to do whenever you have too much is to hide it, flaunt it, insure it, spend it, or leverage it to get a little more of it. But he decides in verse 18, he said, this is what I'll do. Uh, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's a good life. You did it. Pat yourself on the back. I mean, we can like step out of the story just a minute and like recognize this is the candy bowl all over again. Right, friends? This is, the, this is a kid spread out in the living room floor, like arranging and counting up all of his candy, going, man, I am never going to have to go trick-or-treating again. I've got more than enough. I just need to find a little Ziploc bag. I just need to figure out a way to insure it and to store it and to make sure that it's going to be there for a long, long time afterwards. But you can start to see what's happening in the story that Jesus is telling. Again, we're falling into the fallacy like somehow it's about the stuff. Somehow there's a number or a quantity of stuff that's going to satisfy us. And Jesus is going, no, no. In this story, the real tragedy is how much this guy has absolutely turned in and on himself. He is living 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. He is living in arguably the most communal, community-minded society in the history of the planet. Yet even when he's developing this plan... He's got nobody to talk to but himself. Nobody else is around. And the words that he uses, tear down my barns, build bigger ones, store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, he's got only him. And Jesus is like, again, we fell for it. We duped. Don't be that guy. Don't curve in on just yourself. That's it's. That's, that's, it's not life. Life, contentment, joy, happiness isn't found there. And Jesus really drops the bomb on this guy, on the hammer, and for all of us. And we're thinking this guy's going to you know, live out his, his retirement, his golden years, his happy years after he's accumulated so much. In verse 20, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus steps out of telling the story. He just makes a commentary on the story and also the interaction with the brother that came to him. And he said, this is how it'll be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not, in the key three words, rich toward God. Now, for us, reading this story, it feels a little dramatic, right? I mean, it's a made-up story in order to drive home a spiritual truth, so it should be dramatic on Jesus' part, but it's like, come on. Like the day that he decides to take a break? I mean, what happened to like rest, you know, Sabbath? Like, where's that sermon? <laughs> Let's bring that one out. Like, come on. The day afterwards, you fool this very life, this very night, your life is demanded from you, and a guy dies? Sounds like a Landis Morissette song. Some of you get that reference. That's all right. It sounds dramatic, and, and it probably is. But the spiritual truth that's behind it, that's buried underneath some of that, though, is that we look at it and go, I, I thought he had 10 years, you know? I thought he had 20, 30, 40 good years ahead of him yet, and I can't believe how little time he actually had. 
Some of you with small kids know how quick time goes. Some of you looking back at life in the rear view now, not in the windshield, are looking back and going, I can tell you how quickly time goes. Just imagine for a moment the perspective of Jesus, the eternal perspective that Jesus had. You know, he tells the story, and it's like the next day. Jesus, who's the Son of God, begotten of his Father before all time. Before him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus, the eternal God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, right? Jesus, who has always existed. He's not looking at like, oh man, you know what the difference between the next day or the next 40 years. He's going in the scope of eternity, like how long this whole thing is. Whether he lasted a year or two or 40. I mean, listen, we've got, we've got thousands and millions and eons of years on up ahead. We are eternal beings. What is the difference if it goes on for a year or a hundred years in light of eternity? Jesus is like calling everything and going, what if it's right now? Because from an eternal perspective, it is right now. Now, what we do and how we live matters. And if we want to go through life with this kind of posture, right, of of clenching around instead of like living this open-handed kind of life, if we go through life trying to feed what we all know of as an insatiable desire that can be fed but never filled, what kind of life would you call that? You know, Jesus looks at this thing and going, man, if you're going to live on into eternity and do nothing but feed an appetite that you can never fully and finally fill. And just accumulate more and more, and you can do that for a lifetime maybe, and it's fun, but if you do that for an eternity, and if you're allowed to just go on trying to fill a hole you can never be able to fill, it doesn't look like heaven. Not an eternity. I'd say a life like that looks a lot more like hell. And Jesus is going, I got a word to describe for that. It's not life. Life isn't there. Life is found in being those three words, rich toward God. If we want to do this difficult work of opening our hands back up and trying to, trying to join our hearts with a, with a God who designed them, and knows them better than we know ourselves. We join God in being rich towards God, rich towards the causes that God stands behind, rich towards the kingdom of God, rich towards the kind of people that God loves. And like newsflash, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world. He loves this place and he loves every last person in this place. And he led, he went first in, in giving. God loved and so he he went first in giving his, himself, the cost of him, Jesus Christ on the cross. These are the things kind of rich towards God. When we join our hearts with him, I would expect to see a measurable impact in our life. I, I'd say we got to start to experience contentment, experience joy, experience life, expe- experience happiness when we join our hearts with God's because it's living into how we were made. So one gentleman, Michael Norton, without knowing this passage, probably, put this to the test. He's a Harvard business professor, and he ran an experiment that's now become famous. The experiment was done uh, on undergraduate students at the University of British Columbia. Thank you, Canadians, for being our guinea pigs in the story. He ran this deal where he would give participants, willing participants in the game, um, an envelope. 
of cash. Uh, some had $5 bills in it, and some had $20 bills in it. And he goes, okay, separating you guys out into different groups, you guys randomly assigned to spend the money on yourselves. Buy whatever you want. Other group, you are randomly assigned uh, to spend the money on someone else. I don't care who. Just find somebody that you could, in the Christian language, you could bless. And make a difference in their lives by spending the money on them somehow. And then he invited them back, and they just reported their... Their disposition recorded their happiness. He's trying to answer this age-old question that all of us have asked before. Can money buy happiness? And he found in this limited experiment, yes. But it depends what you spend it on. More precisely, it depends who you spend the money on, yourself or someone else. And so he goes, this finding has to be replicated, and it's been replicated dozens of times across most continents in the world today, with every demographic and people group in the world today. And he found the amount of money didn't so much matter, whether it was $5 or $20. Even the magnitude of the gift didn't matter, because one student spent $20 on a used sweater for her mom, because she thought it would bless her mom that day. The other student or another student, or another uh, a participant on the continent of Africa, in the country Uganda, spent her money on life-saving malaria treatment for somebody who needed that. Both of them came back and found, man, I'm different as a result of participating, as a result of opening my hand, as a result of joining my heart with the heart of God, our language, not theirs. I'm different as a result. They replicated the experiment in business offices by randomly assigning some teams to spend the money just on themselves, individually, others to do a pro-social community event. One group got a, bought a pinata, filled it with candy, and just wrecked it as office workers. And they got back to work. And they, the researchers found that there was, it was a return for every 15 cents spent on the pro-social pinata thing. It was a 72-cent return on investment in productivity. The group that just was told to spend the money on just themselves, go out for coffee, do whatever, just, just you, it was a return for every 15 cents spent, 4.2 cents would return back. One guy thought, well, to really prove this experiment, I mean, we have to apply it to the growing sport of dodgeball. And so he found a league where the teams were like deadlocked, and he's thought, okay, next session of the league, we're going to run the experiment. This team is going to be assigned to spend the money all on themselves, just like the office workers. This team gets to do the pinata thing or whatever else. They found the team with the pro-social activities dominated the league in the next session. It's been replicated over and over again. When we join our hearts to the heart of God, it makes a measurable difference in our lives. I would say we experience joy, yes. We experience contentment, yes. Happiness, yes. We experience, I think, what Jesus called life. And Jesus knew, hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago, he knew that this is life in his death. He knew what he was doing. And I don't think he went to the cross sad, sad over sin, yes. But with joy, with contentment, with happiness. And even with life. Because with his life, he was buying ours. God loved, so he gave his one and only son. He gave his life to experience death and back again to new life. 
So let's try it. Let's do it. True story, at the starting point location, uh, at Fulton Heights and at Kenwood, we have envelopes of cash. Inside of each envelope, there's a, a bill. There's fives, there's 20s, there's 50s, there's even $100 bills in some of them. Honestly, fewer of the hundreds than there are of the fives. I'll, I'll level with you. But, uh, but run it. Try it. We would love for you to participate in it. Grab, grab an envelope uh, on your way out and, and spend the money. The assignment is to spend the money on someone, not you. Do something awesome for somebody else. Maybe you know the person. Maybe it's flowers. Maybe it's a card or a candy with a little note attached to it. Maybe it's a coffee or a gift card. I don't know, whatever it is. Just spend the money on someone not named you and experience life on the other side. And then tell us about it. There's a little card, a little QR code. Scan the QR code and just tell us about the experience because we really put a lot into this thing and we want to know, know what happens as a result. So go in the starting point, Fulton Heights and at Kenwood, grab an envelope, give it away, and tell us about the experience that you've had. If you are watching online church today, man, you should have been here in person. <laughs> so much better. <laughs> But you guys get to participate too. Uh, we have the link set up at encounterchurch.org slash give. You can go to the bottom and you can check out the giving challenge is what we're calling this. The only caveat if you're watching online is you got to use your own money. <laughs> Come to church next week. <laughs> Man. It's not that God doesn't want us to have stuff. He just doesn't want our stuff to have us. He wants us to experience life, contentment, joy, happiness, but life eternally with him. And thank goodness, life can start today. But you church to stand up and let's pray together. Sing, grab our money, and go. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for today. Thank you for the story that we read, for this interaction that you had with somebody 2,000 years ago who would change history. God, we pray for those of us reading ourselves into the story, holding on to something, whatever that thing is. Holding on to it, keeping it, trying not to lose it, maybe get a little more of it. Holding on to it, Lord, so tightly that we don't even realize that it's holding on to us. Jesus, you died to save us from these things. Give us the courage to follow after you in your footsteps, the God who loved so deeply that he gave his own life as a ransom for ours. Jesus, we pray all of these things in your resurrected name. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.